I do want to say this, that Bill Treby's not here today. He thinks he has an excuse by son is buying a house and they're moving grandchildren and all that. Please give him a lot of heartache next week when you come back, when he comes back, that how much he was missed and this is not copacetic. I didn't give him a time off. He took it. So uh, he thinks he's going to get it because of grandchildren. It isn't happening. So, you know. This morning we continue with our study of Genesis. Looking at Genesis, not only within the context of those chapters in Genesis that we're dealing with, especially the first three chapters, but remembering to look at Genesis as an presentation an introduction, the beginning of the work of God as he creates, as he establishes his purpose in the creation of man in Genesis 1.26. And as man falls, which we'll see next week, and as God pursues his original creative intention all the way to the end. And so as we look at Genesis and as you would study Genesis, not only Genesis, but especially Genesis, we don't want to do it as this is a book that begins the whole thing. I've read it fine. Let me move on to other things. But everything in the rest of the Word of God is an outgrowth, is the result of, is the moving toward the great crescendo that we find in Revelation 21 and 22. So everything of the Word of God is in seed form in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, in the first three chapters. Everything in the rest of the Word of God is in those chapters. There is in my front yard, and I use this analogy a couple of times this week, a very large oak tree. It would take three people, maybe three or four people, hand in hand to go around the circumference of it. The branches extend way out into the street, almost to the other side. The roots extend that far out. It's a live oak, so, you know, the branches and the roots kind of go with one another. It's about 170 or so years old. There's just no telling how many leaves and acorns have been produced by this tree. Hundreds of thousands that I have to rake up every year. <laughs> the root system on this thing is gigantic. The limbs are huge. And you look at this massive oak, and you realize this. Everything of this oak, and everything that this oak has ever or will ever produce, was in the original little acorn. There's not a leaf, nor an acorn, nor a branch that is indigenous to that oak tree that was not in principle and in life principle in the original seed, the little acorn. Now, you try to figure it out how all that got stuffed into that little acorn. I don't know. And so... What you're seeing in that oak tree, or any of these trees, if you would, is an example, I believe, of what we have in Genesis. Genesis is the acorn. It's the seed. It's the foundation. 
and everything else in the Bible. And I encourage you to read and study and look for and identify and be aware of everything else in our Bible is contained in the seed of Genesis. Genesis is the acorn. So never read your Bible apart from that kind of consideration. But read it within the context of I'm reading about Israel. I'm reading about the Dead Sea. Uh, I'm reading about the, the Promised Land. I'm reading about, you know, King David. I'm reading about the restoration of Israel under, uh, you know, the temple under Nehemiah. And that. Everything is in the original acorn. The coming of Jesus, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Everything comes out of that acorn. So let's make sure we see Genesis that way and see our Bibles that way. As one continuum wrapped up all together, everything being interlocked, interrelated, nothing, nothing standing on its own, everything standing in composition and in community and in unity. This is the Word of God. Amen? No other book. Why? Because no other book is written by the very hand of God through mortal men. That's what we have here. Father, thank you for your word. Father, continue to minister to us. Father, continue to do this awesome work. Of filling us with your presence that we may know you. Not only is mighty God, creator, sustainer, sovereign Lord, but also as intimate Father, personal, loving, and caring. Father, you are incredible. Your work is incredible. Your word is incredible. Father, cause this incredibleness to more and more grab our hearts and our minds Father, so that we would be more and more captured in the reality of our daily living. To be expressing more and more through our relationships, through anything we do, wherever we are, your awesomeness. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we're going through Genesis 2, some of you may have noticed that we've not done very much with the woman. We've talked about the man and so on. So this morning... We're finally getting to talk to about Genesis 2.14 to 2.24, in, uh, 2.18 to 2.24 in specifics this morning. So this morning we're going to go back and look at the creation and purpose of Eve. What God had in mind, not only for Adam, but what God had in mind for Eve. And how Adam and Eve, how man and woman, how husband and wife are to function together. Now remember Genesis 2-7, Adam was alone and that was not good. Remember Genesis 2-7, God creates Adam and once he creates Adam, he says, it's not good. It's not good. What well, yet you see in the last verse of the last chapter, we see God saying it was very good. So something has happened. It's not good. And this is where, of course, people begin to say that two different accounts, two different authors and all that kind of stuff, simply because they have not been given the revelation of the Holy Spirit as to what's really going on here. When God creates Adam, he said it is not good for Adam to be alone. Why? Why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? What scripture evidence 
uh, is proof to us that it's not good for Adam to be alone. What's scriptural evidence? Genesis 1.26. May I repeat again, and may I continue to repeat the same thing. Everything about my life and your life, everything about every decision, everything about every action, every thought, word, and deed, everything about our lives personally and in community is wrapped up in Genesis 1.26. If it's not in Genesis 1.26, it isn't. It doesn't exist. But since we do exist, everything about us is in Genesis 1.26. And so again, let us make sure that we take the Word of God and allow it to speak to our lives, when we, especially we're trying to make decisions about what to do and where to go and how to live and where to live and, and, and all of these decisions. Because everything has to do with the fulfillment of this grand purpose of God that we should be the living image of our God on earth. And so, why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? Very simply, in order to image the community of God, why do we say community? Because God is not a single person God. I ask the question regularly in here, what is the single most significant and fundamental and critical truth about God? What is it? Let's say it is not, let's say it negatively and then say it positively. The most critical, central, fundamental truth about God is this, that God is not a single person God, that He is a triune being that He is one God, one in being, three in persons. This is the most critical issue and truth that there is about God. Everything else about God, everything else about God is the result of the revelation of who God is within Himself. And who is He within Himself? He is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, functioning in unity, in community, in love, in roles, and relationship. This is who our God is. And so if man is going to be the image of this community God, he must be a community on earth. Therefore, it's not good for Adam to be alone because a single person cannot image a community. At least you need how many? Two. At least you need two. And so woman has to be created. Because Adam's, Adam must have another like himself. See, Adam's need was relational. Adam had a relational need. Why? Why did Adam have a relational need? Because he was created to image God who is a relational being within himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit relating to one another. So therefore we have Genesis 2.18. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. Why does God create woman so that Adam's singleness may be completed in Eve so Adam no longer is a single being, but the two become one in their relationship. And as a one community, they are able to reflect or image the community of God. So let's look at the woman, Genesis 7 to 25. See, the Lord did not just create a woman for Adam. He created a woman who would be a helper suitable for him. When God created women, he created them with the specific purpose of being the helper suitable for their men, for the husband and the wife specifically and in a general sense within the community of the church. So God isn't just creating other people. 
in the creation of every man and in the creation of every woman, God has this specific purpose of imaging himself. And so this is what woman is going to do. She's going to complete the revelation that God began in Adam so that the two of them together and their progeny, their children, boys and girls or males and females can collectively together image the community of God. What is a helper? A helper, it is a relational term. It's not a term of lower status. Now, you see, this is where the world has pinned something on the church that is incorrect. And unfortunately, this is how the church has been somewhat culpable in this because they have taken this issue of helper and woman <clears throat> and have denigrated and lowered women. And that is not according to the Word of God. Helper is a relational term. It's not a status of lower place. The Hebrew word is mostly used in the Old Testament to refer as, to God as the helper of his people. And so when the Hebrew word here uses, when he, the Hebrew word for helper here, it's normally used throughout the Old Testament as God being the helper of his people. So here all of a sudden you begin to see the enormous significance to God creating a woman to be his helper. Suitable. Suitable means to be able to be fit. Your Bible may either say fit for or suitable. It means to be able to render the help needed. And so when the man is created and then the woman is created, the woman is created not only to be the man's helper, but she is given everything necessary in order to be able to help him the way he needs to be helped. She has the anointing and the gifting and the presence of God to be able to do for the man and with the man what God intends to happen so that the two may live as a community. Therefore, you see, when it says, a helper suitable for him, <clears throat> this means that Adam alone cannot fulfill his creative purpose. He needs his wife. He needs his wife. Now, hopefully, as we speak about this this morning, <clears throat> those of you who are single can anticipate this in the future as you marry, hopefully. And those of you who are married, begin, well, let us begin to see our husbands and our wives in the biblical sense in a much greater way than we ever have seen before. I need my wife, and my wife needs me. Now, you may not think so. There are husbands and wives here who realize, you know, I can do fine without my wife. I know how to cook. I know how to dress myself. I don't know. I'm just sure. Uh, you know, I, 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 I know when to brush my teeth. I take a bath once a week. So, you know, I'm okay. <clears throat> I'm a guy I can do without my wife. My wife may think, well, I can do without my husband. <clears throat> I'm much more adept at making groceries. I know how to uh, keep the house clean. I know how to make myself look. Now, you know, so I don't need my wife. And in a physiological way, perhaps this is true. We don't need one another in order to survive. We see that, especially at the death of a spouse. But what we need, the re where we need one another is spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Why? 
in order to fulfill the purpose of God, the husband and the wife, especially the husband and wife, need one another. The men of the church need the women of the church. The women of the church need the men of the church. The men of the church are not more important than the women. The women are not less important than men. All are equal in God's sight, having differing roles, just like in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal, absolutely equal. You cannot say one is more important than the other. The difference in the distinction is not in their inequality or in their significance, but in their roles as they relate to one another. That's the place where the distinction is made. So who would say that the Father is more important than the Son because the Father leads the Trinity? Who would say the Son is more important than the Father? Who of us would even dare to say that? And yet, let us not say that and think that in relation to men and women, husband and wife, in the body of Christ. So if there's any thought among us in those areas, begin to put them away because they're demonic thoughts. They're thoughts that Satan has brought into the church through the world to begin to corrupt the image of God. So who are more important, the men or the women? Neither. Both are what? Equally important. I think you could later on write it down. I think it's Genesis 3, what is it, 28? All are one, Greek and Gentile, we're all one in Christ. I think it's Genesis 3.28 is the reference for that. In other words, to show this necessity of connection and relationship, this connection and relationship, Eve is created from Adam. What is God showing? He's showing the connection to Adam and her relationship to Adam. That's why he's doing that. He certainly could easily have looked in the, gotten into the dirt, spit in the dirt, created an Eve right out of the dirt as he did Adam, and bring her forth. But he creates her, he creates her in this way in order to show her connection to him and her relationship to him. That's why he does what he does. Showing that her role in relationship to Adam is one of support and encouragement, a source of wisdom and discernment. As both mutually walk and work together to fulfill God's mandate that is given to Adam. So can Adam fulfill his mandate alone? No. Can the church fulfill its mandate without the women? Can it? No. Can the church fulfill its mandate without the men? No. So what do we need? We need both men and women working together, understanding that all are equal in Christ, but there are differing roles through relationships in order to be maintained so that the church may effectively, clearly, and correctly manifest who God is in himself. This is one of the primary reasons, perhaps the most basic reason, why this church, for instance, believes in male leadership. Why? Because as men, we reflect the Father's leadership. And we see that as an, uh, a breaking of that image if we allow women to function as leaders or elders or pastors in the church. It has nothing to do with we don't think women are as capable. Most of them can out-talk us. Most of them are more intelligent than we are. Let's face it, guys. Most of these women have it all over us. Amen, women? I mean, that's it. It really is. But the issue is not capability. The issue is relationship. The issue is manifestation of who God is within himself. This is what's going on in the church, or should be going on in the church. They are to relate, men and women, husband and wife, are to relate in an atmosphere of mutual love and care. 
and service. Mutual love, care, and service. So that in that relationship, the loving relationship and activity between the Father and the Son especially can be imaged. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. This is why Eve was created. In order, in her role of Adam's helper, in her role as Adam's helper, Eve is the most influential and important person to Adam with the obvious exception of God himself. I tell husbands and wives all the time, and I tell the wives, you are the most influential and powerful person in your husband's wife. Much more so than any pastor, more so than anyone else other than the Holy Spirit, the woman is the most influential person in a man's life. She is the most important person to him, or should be. She can do the most help to her husband, and she can do the most damage to her husband. Because this is the way God has made it. And so wives, remember this. God has created you and your husband together so that each of you functioning in your particular role as God has given it to you. The man has specific roles of leadership, lovingly leading his wife. And the woman has specific role of relationship to that man's leadership, to be respectful and submission, submissive, or in other words, receiving the husband's love and leadership, respecting it in a submissive and following and helping way so that to, to the two may be able to image the relationship most specifically between the father and the son in the Godhead. And in that relationship, the woman is the most influential person in that man's life much more so than any pastor, except for the Holy Spirit. And vice versa, of course, but I'm talking about women today. You see, she has the anointing and the relational status to be, do the most good or the most harm to her man. She has the anointing and relational status to do the most good or the most harm to her man. And on this basis, specifically for married couples, but in general for the women in the church, this is going to be, I think, one of the primary areas of judgment on the day of judgment as the church stands before the Lord. I don't believe it's going to be nearly as upsetting to God if you happen to say when you hit your hand, oh, damn, oh, oh, my God. As to your relationship, your attitude, your motive, the way you function as husband and wife, the way we function in the church as men and women. Wife, you see, here it is. This is a term that God used to describe Eve's special relationship to and with Adam, a wife. Remember in Genesis 2.24, make him a wife. The husband will leave his mom and them and cleave to his wife. So that's the first time you begin to see that word. It is the establishment of the marriage as the most critical way that God is imaged in the church. There is no other relationship in the church. There is no other relationship in the church that so clearly and compellingly reflects the relationship of the persons of God. All relationships within the church do it, but the marriage does it the most specifically and the most compellingly. That's the one where mostly God's image is to be seen 
as this man and this woman live together and relate together and walk together and do everything together in a way that is to image Christ and the church, which is to image the Father and the Son. So in this passage, God has set forth the earthly relationship that most powerfully displays his nature and his character. This is what marriage is all about. If you've not thought about this, then you need to think. Why am I married? What is the purpose of it? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be doing it? Look at Genesis 1, and it will tell you. It's all about imaging the relationship roles within God himself. So this relationship, which powerfully displays the nature and character of God, so that a marriage is to be the clearest and most compelling, compelling display of who God is and how God is within himself. And so this is what Paul tells you, remember, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And in that passage, he gets down to the specifics and the theology of it in verse 32. And he said, this, this, this mystery, what mystery? Genesis 2, 24, the two becoming one. The two becoming one. They live in such a way that they are two, but they live in such a way that they are really one. They are joined relationally to be so united together that they are one. But they're not really one. You see, God is one, but he's not really one. But he is one. But he isn't one. But he is one. And so the two becoming really one. The one expressing unity so that when you look at the one you see two when you're looking at the two you see one and we begin to get some kind of a clearer picture of who God is within himself naked ah now you see here it is naked Remember they said, it, they said the verse 25 said they were naked. You remember that? You, you, you read the last verse in chapter 2. Well, the word naked here means not so much their physical condition, but their spiritual maturity. Remember last week we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we said that Adam and Eve were not created as totally mature, totally wise and discerning people. They had to grow in relation to this. They were innocent. They were without sin. But they were naive, and they had to grow in respect to righteousness, just like you see in Luke 2.52. Jesus had to grow. He had to grow. Jesus wasn't born knowing all the Hebrew, all the Greek, everything and everything, and he just knew everything about everything because he's a son of God. No, he became as a son of God in an infant who had to depend upon his mom and them and depend upon being fed and depend upon being trained in potty, you know, things like that, and had to learn. He had to go to school. He had to take lessons. He had to do his homework. He had to be shown how to use a chisel. He had to be, you know, he had to grow up in this same way. Adam and Eve are naked. I think it has to do much more with their innocence and their naivete than the physical condition of their relationship. So in the garden, they are innocent, naive, having no personal experience of sin, even though they were warned in 2.17, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have no personal experience of sin yet. They were personally unacquainted with the effects of sin. And how were they to mature? How were they to grow up? How are any of us able to grow in wisdom and discernment? How are any of us able to grow in the fruit of the Spirit? How are any of us able to grow in relationships and walking in Christ? How? By obedience to the Word of God. 
And how can we obey the Word of God if we're not regularly reading and studying the Word of God? <clears throat> May I suggest this, and I'm not going to use that word suggest. May I say this unequivocally without any fear or even desire of backing down from it. I believe the primary problem of weakness in the church is our enormous and systemic weakness in our knowledge of the Word of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to do anything, but you just think for a moment. And think of this. Last week, last week, the last seven days, how much time did you give to the reading and studying of God's Word? And if your children or grandchildren gave that much time to their studies, how many of you would be satisfied that they're going to do okay in life? Or how many of you would be horrified? How much time did you spend on your studies last night? Ten minutes? Mm. And you have an exam when? How much time are we spending in prayer? And we wonder why, why the weakness and where the weakness and everything else. Do you wonder? Let us no longer wonder. We're very busy, aren't we? We're so busy doing everything but what is essential to the faith. I'm sorry. We're so busy. I know we're busy. Life is crushing in. Life has demands. And Satan is being so successful that the church of the redeemed the busyness of the world is squeezing us only because we are allowing it and our participants in it, squeezing us away from the most essential and the only essential relationship of all, and that is our relationship with God and with one another. I'm tired. Church, don't ever come to me and tell me you're too busy. I'm not going to get angry or whatever, but I won't receive it. I'm not going with it. The moment I don't have time to study and read is a moment I'm doing too much of the devil's work. And I don't say the devil's work is taking my child to soccer or doing this, but it is the devil's work only in the fact that he is using that good work for a bad reason. So in that respect, I call it the devil's work. I, I think if you understand it that way. He's using something good to harm me, therefore it begins to become a twisted thing. Let us not be deceived. We had the time. Why? God has given us everything that we need to be the people of his image. So obeying God, as they obeyed him, they would grow in wisdom and discernment and knowing what is good and evil, not by experiencing the evil, but by knowing the good. Well, let's talk about the serpent. <clears throat> I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. I want to spend more time on the woman than I did the serpent and the tempter. Genesis 3.1. Okay, everything has been set. We have spent, how many weeks have we spent? About nine weeks in the first two chapters of Genesis. Now, we've gone through it pretty quickly, but we spent about nine weeks. Hopefully, you have a much clearer understanding of what these two chapters are about. Now, remember the profundity. Do you know what I mean? Profoundness. Remember the profundity of Adam and Eve's responsibility. Remember the profundity of this, the enormity of what they are given to do as we go into chapter 3. 
having discussed the Christological significance, remember, looking at chapters 1 and 2 through the eyes and understanding of Christ and His redemption, looking at the Old Testament through the eyes and the glasses of the New, so that the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ can illumine the dark and dim areas of the Old Testament which are not illumined until Christ comes as the light of the world so that what we see in the Old Testament is veiled and difficult to understand. Not quite sure about that. I don't understand how this connects. And all of a sudden the lights go on and say, oh, oh, look at, oh, I am, now I see it. Of course, that makes sense to me, but it only makes sense in relation to Christ. Not in relation to standing in the dark but to standing in the light as a light casts out all the confusion and makes clear what God is doing. So having done that in chapters 1 and 2, we turn now attention to the disaster of the fall, man's deliberate repudiation and rejection of God. First of all, the serpent. The chapter begins by introducing the serpent as just another animal in the garden. Now what does it say? Chapter 3 begins this way. Did you know that there were walking, talking serpents in those days? Can you imagine that? No, how does it start? Now, the serpent was what? What? The most what? Cunning or crafting, crafty of all the beasts of the field that the Lord created, right? It just starts off, there's a serpent there, and the thing is walking around some kind of way and talking. We're not going to go into, is this true or whatever. We're going to accept it as true because we see it in the Bible, and what God is telling us is absolutely true and has total significance for our lives. Some kind of way. This didn't startle Eve. She didn't go, ah, and run away. So some kind of way, there was something going on in the garden. There were creatures and relationships or activities in the garden that are totally strange to us and unknown to us. But that was God's garden, remember, God's temple garden. So the chapter begins by introducing the serpent. He's just another animal in the garden. It's just another animal. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. <clears throat> what does the word crafty mean? The word crafty means cunning, subtle. And it's not in and of itself a bad word. It doesn't have evil or good connotations within itself. It's like the word epithumia in the Greek meaning lust. The word lust in and of itself just means strong desire. So Jesus says, I have epithumia. You know, I have lusted. I have had strong desire to eat this meal with you. So in and of itself, the word isn't wrong. It isn't bad. It isn't good. It just depends how it's going to be used and where it's going to be directed, what its object is. In Proverbs 1, 4, and 8, 5, this, use, this word crafty is used positively as prudence. You need to have crafty. You need to be crafty. You need to be wise. You need to be discerning. You need to be cunning in the good way. You need this in a good way. But in Job, it is used in a negative sense. It's used this way. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. So your sin is causing you to be crafty in a negative or detrimental way. So because the serpent is crafty in and of itself doesn't mean good or bad. But the opportunity, because craftiness is there, is for Satan to use it for his purpose. The serpent's craftiness is set over against, remember, the innocence of the couple. He is crafty and they are innocent. They are, not, they are no match for such an opponent apart from the wisdom of God. No match for this opponent. 
But the serpent's subtleness is the ground of Satan's deception of Eve. So here he knows this serpent. He knows it's crafty. He knows it's cunning. I don't know how this works. Don't ask me later how it works. I don't understand it. All I know is what God says, and we're going to go along with that. So we have the, the mechanism. We have the animal. We have the means of Satan entering into the garden and beginning conversation with the woman concerning her obedience to God's word. So let's look at the tempter. Now, from this text, just from Genesis 3.1, don't think about anything else. From Genesis 3.1, we have no clarity who is using the serpent as a spokesman. From Genesis 3.1, we know nothing about the devil here. Do you see that? What do we know in Genesis 3.1? There's a talking serpent and he's crafty. That's all we know. <clears throat> and when we look at the Old Testament, this whole issue of the tempter and Satan and the personal devil is punctuated throughout the Old Testament, but the Jews did not have a developed theology of a personal devil. They had a theology of evil, the evil in the world, you know, there's some kind of cosmic thing. <clears throat> but they didn't have this developed theology that we have until the New Testament. Again, it's one of those things that are there in seed form, but doesn't come forth in the fullness until the light of the incarnation. And then all of a sudden, what is there in glimpses becomes very clear and very obvious to us. So we can't say that the Jews and Israelites understood the, the, the issue of Satan and the tempter the way we do. Christ has explained it to us. He has given us full revelation, or at least as full as we need. This revelation of the serpent being used by the tempter, like the Trinity, is not developed in the Old Testament, but is presented in a shadowy way, and the reality, remember, comes as a result of the New Testament. So the theology of this tempter is a New Testament understanding or truth where the light of God's truth is shown upon the issues that are in the Old Testament, upon the scriptures that are in the Old Testament, to show us, ah, this is what's going on. Oh, I see it now. This is what they didn't see. The serpent is the tool of Satan. He uses this serpent. Now, the serpent isn't Satan. Satan is the demonic presence using the serpent. You got that? The serpent is not Satan. It is an animal. It is Satan's tool, or the serpent is being used by a demonic presence, or a demonic being called Satan. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.3. 11, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Now, when he says that, Paul doesn't mean that a serpent actually deceived her, but it was the use of the serpent by Satan deceiving the woman. Now this should say something to all of us concerning deception and the activity of Satan in our lives. Deceive Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So your thoughts. How does he deceive Eve? Through her thoughts, by communicating something to Eve that she begins to listen to and begins to participate in a discussion here, and her mind beginning to think about the things that Satan is saying. 
Now, this is extremely important for us to begin to look at ourselves and the way Satan tempts us, the way he uses people, circumstances, opportunities, the way he uses stuff in our lives to tempt us. He begins a discussion. He begins a presentation. And we begin by giving some consideration to this. And as we do that, he in his craftiness, if we're not willing to call upon the name of the Lord for greater wisdom, he begins to lead us astray, just as he did Eve. The identity of the serpent with Satan is most clearly developed in Revelation. I'm not going to read that, but in Revelation 12, 9 and 14 through 15, those verses in chapter 12, you see that the serpent is identified as the dragon, the Satan, the devil, you know, that deceiver of the brethren, those, that one who accuses the brethren on a regular basis. And so the New Testament is saying the serpent or the demonic activity or power behind the serpent is Satan. The word Satan is literally a Hebrew word. S-A-T-A-N is the Hebrew word, which means opposer or adversary or accuser. Now, again, it's like those words often that are used in the Old Testament. The word Satan in and of itself is not a good or bad term. It is a neutral term. <clears throat> the noun Satan can refer to a man. In 1 Samuel 29, 4, David is an adversary of the Philistines. He is the Satan of the Philistines. He is called by God to be the Philistines' adversary. So the word Satan in and of itself in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, is not necessarily a bad word. It can be referring to a man. David is the Satan or the adversary or the one who opposes the Philistines. The noun Satan can also refer to an angelic uh, well, let me give you an important one. 1 Kings 11, 14 and 23. The Lord raises up adversaries against Solomon. These are people or two men who will oppose Solomon. So let's be careful when we think of opposition and adversary and things that are coming in our lives opposing what we want to do and opposing the way we want to live and opposing our thoughts and whatever. Let's make sure that that opposition isn't considered to be Satan every time. It could be God himself raising up opposition to us to keep us protected, to keep us from falling under the weight of sin. Solomon is given two adversaries that oppose him because of Solomon's disobedience. And so the Lord sends in Satan's or adversaries. So let's think a moment. Are there any areas in my life where I am feeling opposition? Are you sure it's always the enemy or could it be God? What should we do? We ask. We ask the Lord. The noun Satan can refer to an angelic being. 1 Chronicles 21, uh, 1, Satan incites David to sin by numbering. You have to look at, we'll see what that means. It is Satan, an angelic being. In Job 1 and 2, you remember, it is Satan who asks permission to touch Job. But in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, the Lord rebukes Satan for accusing the high priest. So Satan, again, is this angelic being who is opposing the purposes of God. But the noun Satan can also refer to the Lord himself. As an opposer, Numbers 22, 22, but God's anger was kindled against 
uh, kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. God was standing against Balaam and God himself, the angel of the Lord, became Balaam's adversary or if you would, Balaam's Satan. Why are we spending time to do this? To make sure we see that every time in the Old Testament the word adversary or, or accuser or opposer is used is a negative term. It can be one or the other. But now with the incarnation of Jesus, Satan is clearly identified as a supernatural angelic being who is God's chief adversary. In Matthew, Satan tempts Jesus to sin. Satan seeks to use and sift Peter, remember. I will never deny you. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. He wants to sift Peter. Satan has demanded permission to sift you, Peter. Remember in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus saw Satan being cast out of heaven. Remember, I saw Satan being cast out. Jesus identifies Satan as the head of a kingdom, Satan's kingdom. The New Testament uses several titles for Satan. The devil. Do you have this in your list of, uh, in your outline? How many times? The devil, 34 times. Do you have that little list there? The devil, 34 times. Evil one, 10 times. Prince of demons, four times. I mean, he's all over the place, you see. The prince of the power of the air in Ephesians, remember, one time. The ruler of this world, three times. The god of this world, one time. The father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning, one time. The accuser of the brethren, one time. The deceiver, one time. These, this should inform us as to our adversary. You see, even though it was the serpent who spoke to Eve, it was Satan who was using the serpent to do his bidding. And I don't think, church, today, the modern church is sobered enough about this issue. I don't think we are concerned enough about the presence and activity of a very real, demonic, malevolent being and his emissaries that are continually given to us to attack us, to deceive us, to throw us off, to do whatever he can to cause us not to be able to be living in the image of God. I think we need to be much more sobered. Knowing this should sober us as to Satan's abilities to deceive and to seduce us to do his will. Remembering that he can disguise himself even as an angel of light. So no wonder Paul says walk very carefully. Walk very, very carefully. It's just kind of a general kind of a uh, thing to set up for next week. We'll talk next week about the temptation and we'll talk about its consequences and then start getting into the great news of the gospel of what God does to bring man back. See you next week. <clears throat>